What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question, we'd like to uh, take, a, take a swing at that question for you and get you the real answer that you need. Here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. And if you're watching us on TV, you may want to shoot us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Michael McCall is our producer. Matt Gabinski is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, uh, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box, and then uh, Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio, and hopefully we can get your question answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you, my friend? I'm decent. Thank you. Interesting question here from Mike on Long Island, who says, in Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25, the Bible says, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son and he named him Jesus. Does this leave room for the possibility that Mary was not a virgin in perpetuity? Well, no, because the text doesn't say anything about what happened um, after the birth of Jesus. The point of the text is to emphasize that Christ was born of a virgin, and it really doesn't deal with anything that takes place after that. Now, some people have tried to make hay out of the preposition until. He didn't have relations with her until as if that implied that after Christ was born, they somehow consummated the marriage. Uh, and that might be inferred from the English preposition until, but not from the Greek preposition heos, in which St. Matthew actually wrote. Ah, okay. Well, there you go, Mike. Thanks so much for your question from Long Island. Here's one now from Richard. In reading the Divine Office, the antiphon was, Offer to God the sacrifice of praise. What does that mean? Um, yeah, so a sacrifice is when we when we give up something of value in, uh, to, to the honor of God, and to to render praise to God is to make, at the very least, a sacrifice of your time and attention. Sure. And so the antiphon draws your attention to the fact that this is something that is right and just, and God is due our worship, and so it is a kind of a sacrifice. Very good. Uh, Richard, thanks for your email. Here's one now from Michelle. Please help. I have a difficult time embracing certain devotions like Our Lady of Fatima, who supposedly says, many will be damned because they have no one to pray for them. Is this an official Catholic teaching? This makes no sense to me at all. Yeah, thank you. So the, the Catholic faith teaches that when you become Catholic, you are obligated to believe everything that the Catholic Church declares to be revealed by God. Okay. And that is limited to what you find in sacred scripture, uh, to what was taught by Christ and the apostles, either in Scripture or handed on by a sacred tradition from from 
Christ and the original deposit of faith. This okay. is what we call the public revelation of the Church, the public revelation of Christ. Anything that uh, purports to have happened after that, after Jesus' ascension and the company of the original disciples that, that wrote their accounts of Christ's life and their epistles and so forth, anything after that basically would fall into the realm of private revelation. So if some visionary or mystic claims to have seen something or experienced something or Jesus told them something, none of that is part of the public revelation of the Church. None of that counts as something that the Church declares to have been revealed by God. Okay. And so none of it is obligatory for belief. Now, occasionally, very occasionally, very rarely, there will be a seer or visionary or prophet or somebody who has an experience that the Church declares is uh, not in conflict with the faith and that it is permissible for the faithful to have a devotion to this or that apparition, but it doesn't require it of anyone. And so if you, if, if the operations of Our Lady of Fatima do not, as it were, float your boat, <laughs> you are under no obligation to, to adhere to that uh, revelation or to perform those devotions. Michelle, thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Eleanor. I had a question on offering masses for the deceased. Would it be okay to offer masses for deceased relatives if they were not Catholic? Thank you, Eleanor. It is okay. It is a good idea. It is a charitable thing to do. Yeah, I think so, too. Eleanor, thank you so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Andy. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it mentions that Jesus was priest, prophet, and king. Is there any relationship between Jesus and previous priests, prophets, or kings? Well, yeah. Uh, it kind of depends on what you mean by the relationship, the nature of the relationship. All previous prophets, priests, and, ting, and, tings, and kings <laughs> were anticipations, if you were. They were... They were typologies, they were um, suggestions, they were prophetic, proleptic anticipations of the ministry of Jesus that fulfilled uh, all of the prophetic, priestly, and kingly ministry in his person, whereas they were just, just uh, you know, they were, they were a, a poor imitation, mm. but pointing ultimately towards what would be fulfilled in the Messiah. Andy, thanks so much for your question, and we have this one from Jess. How do we know the books of the Bible are divinely inspired? We only know that the books of the Bible are divinely inspired because the Holy Catholic Church tells us that they are. Okay. And so the real question then becomes, how do we come to trust the teaching of the Holy Catholic Church? And, and that we rely upon uh, what are called the motives of credibility, so things like the fulfillment of prophecy and the holiness of the Church and the miracles of the saints and so forth render the act of faith in divine revelation and the Church's authority credible. Uh, and then it's on the authority of the Catholic Church that declares these books are inspired and authoritative, that Catholics collectively adhere to these particular texts. But there's no there's no Holy Spirit Geiger counter, if you will, that you can that you can pass over the books and and discern through some kind of uh, intuition or interior experience that they're that they're inspired or authoritative. There are, there are non-Catholics that try to make that claim, but I think they fall apart on examination. Well, very good. And uh, Jess, thank you so much for your email. I want to thank everybody who sent in their emails to us. Uh, we, can always, uh, we can always use a few more. We would love to answer yours. So if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is ctc at EWTN.com, ctc at EWTN.com. In a moment, we'll get to the phones and we'll talk with Mike in northern Oklahoma. Looks like we have a couple of lines open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Do stay with us. 
It's called A Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning here with Mike in northern Oklahoma, listening online. Hey there, Mike. What's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, I hope I get this out right, um, my question. Uh, By the way, you two are awesome. Anyway, I keep hearing where we, when we pray to God, we can't change his mind. And um, the only thing that that really happens is he changes our attitude to our request. But in the Bible, there's Moses, Abraham, Lot, Mary at the Feast of Cana. Seems like they changed, he, he gave in to their request. And um, so it just really confuses me. Um, I don't know, to me, God is way above any master chess player, and he can uh, answer our prayers, give in to our requests, and the outcome will still turn out like he wants it to. So that's my question. Okay. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So... The Catholic faith definitely teaches that God answers prayer, and that prayer can be efficacious, and that that prayer can be an instrumental cause in in changes in the world. And you know, uh, someone might pray for the sick, and the sick might become well, and as a result of the prayer, and that would be due to God's supernatural intervention, and miracles occur, and all that's part of the Catholic faith. The question is, how do we square that philosophically with what we can know about God and God's nature? And because God is the the, the place where the ultimate buck stops, as it were. He's the ultimate metaphysical explanation for everything. There can't be anything outside of God that moves God. God is immutable by definition, because otherwise, if, there were, if, if God were mutable, if God were changeable, then he couldn't be infinite, because uh, it would imply that, uh, you know, if the change in the, it involves that there could be some sort of increase or decrease of perfection or position or, or something like that. And it's not compatible with the idea of an ultimate cause. An ultimate explanation has to be, by definition, immutable. And there are biblical texts that also confirm that, like James chapter 1, verse 17 says, In God there is no change nor shadow of alteration, right? And we could quote many other passages as well to that effect. Um, the texts of Scripture that you reference, uh, you're right, they definitely exist, texts that depict Christ, excuse me, not Christ, but depict God the Father with a kind of human personality and mutability who enters into conversation and seems to change his mind. And and from a Catholic point of view, that would be a kind of a condescension to our psychological state and position uh, in recognition that there really is such a thing as answered prayer, right? But it wouldn't be due to God, uh, you know, changing his mind or regretting something or realizing he'd made a mistake, nothing like that. So the way we typically think about it in the Catholic Church would be to say that God plans from all eternity to make use of human prayer at some specific moment in time, in some specific place, as an instrumental cause, a genuine instrumental cause, to bring about what he had already foreordained to accomplish. So I'm sort of agreeing with you that (laughs) God can answer prayer and bring about what he already intended, but with with this added... Uh, with with this addition, that the working out of that plan is from eternity past. See, God sees from eternity past how he's going to make use of your prayer in the future to bring about his will, oh. and it all takes place within God in a single permanent instant that involves no alteration or change in his state or consciousness or 
ideas or anything like that. Well, very good. And uh, Mike, thanks so much for your call from Northern Oklahoma. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, lines are open right now, 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go now to Joe, a first-time caller from San Jose, California, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey there, Joe. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, um, enjoying the show. Uh, well, I had a question. I was, originally was supposed to go to Jerusalem, um, but under the circumstances, our cha- travel agency um, asked us if we wanted to switch our trip, so we did. And we ended up going to Turkey and Dubai. And I was really amazed with Turkey and Dubai with their faith. And obviously, they're Muslim. It's a Muslim, Muslim country. And, um, you know, I was, I was amazed with their faith and, and how dedicated they are to the Muslim faith. And my question is, in the Bible, growing up here in the Western Hemisphere, in the Bible it says that only through Christ are we to inherit heaven. Now, when I was over there, you know, I saw, you know, everybody's Muslim, so if a woman grows up in, in Turkey or Dubai, and her grandmother's Muslim, her mother's Muslim, she grows up Muslim, her family's Muslim, and, you know, she, she's a virgin when she was married, she has her, uh, she was married to her husband, uh, you know, loves her children, loves her husband, and then she dies, will she go to heaven? I'm- okay. Yeah, okay, I really appreciate the question. So, uh, the, the Catholic faith teaches that you do not have to be a card-carrying, visible member of the Catholic Church in order to go to heaven, that God can save you anywhere in the world in any tradition, uh, but that if he does save you, it's going to be through the grace of Christ. Now, that grace of Christ may be presented to you in a way that you're not conscious of, uh-huh. uh, but it'll nevertheless be through Christ and the, intermedi- and the mediation of the Church that anyone who is saved will be saved, but they might be saved while still remaining a member of, say, the Islamic faith or the Jewish faith or what uh-huh. have you. Now, I want to specify that, let's say, uh, from a Catholic point of view, if a Muslim is saved and goes to heaven, it's not because of his Islam per se. It would be in spite of it. It might be because of elements of the Islamic tradition, but not not the Islamic tradition as a whole. Hmm. Catholic tradition, Catholic faith looks at other traditions and evaluates them in terms of the degree of truth or means of sanctification that they possess. So... Um, from a Catholic point of view, what is essential for salvation is that one has charity in one's heart towards God and neighbor. And we have a pretty pretty meaty, pretty thick definition of what that means, charity. And other traditions may have charitable people, but there may be elements of the tradition that mitigate against charity. So, you know, for example, um, uh, executing apostates or taking uh, sex slaves in war or... Um, uh, you know, denigrating the status or, or dignity of women. These, these these are things that would not be in accord with what the Catholic faith regards as the kind of charity necessary to be saved. And mm-hmm. so other traditions, while it's possible for a person to be saved in another tradition, the tradition may throw up obstacles that could make it more or less difficult to, to really cooperate with that grace of God. Now, obviously, there are people who are saved out of these traditions, but uh, we don't presume their salvation— uh, we still evangelize, we still invite people to consider the fullness of Christ in the Catholic faith, and we call them to the heights of the ethical life demonstrated by Christ, the kind of love and charity and self-sacrifice that Christ exhibited, which would say not be compatible with things like honor killing or sex slavery. Mm-hmm. Joe, thanks so much for your call from San Jose. Good to hear from you today on Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Let me give you that number again, 833 833- 
888-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, or perhaps you'd like to explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on TV today, the email address is the way you want to communicate with us, and that is ctc at ewtn.com. All right, let's go to Louisville now and talk with Michael, listening on our longtime partner there in Louisville, and that'd be Holy Family Radio. Michael, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, My question is, do aborted babies pray or beg for the conversion of their parents? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that we know much about the state of mind of aborted infants in glory, right, if they are admitted to the beatific vision. So I don't know what the specific content of their prayers would be, but we know that anyone who's in heaven wills the will of God. They will it perfectly. They will exactly what God wills. And so I think that Clearly, in at least a general way, uh, the souls of all of the faithful departed who see the vision of God will the salvation of the whole world because that's what God wills. Okay. Michael, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Anne is watching us on Facebook right now. Anne says, do I really have to say the number of times I did a sin in confession? Okay, so what the Council of Trent taught on this was that a person should confess their known mortal sins in kind and number. But, but, but confessing them in number does not necessarily require that you keep a kind of, um, you know those clickers that you use to mark <laughs> off paces when you're walking the sure. football field? You, know, yeah. you don't have to keep a clicker in your pocket and get the exact count. So, you know, if you, if you uh, say, lost your temper 53 times and you did so mortally, that'd be pretty bad, egregious losing of the temper. Yeah. And you, you know, I, I lost my temper 52 times. Well, you know, that's all right. I mean, you're not. This is not. You know, God. I don't. Is, I God don't is, have. I, I don't have to buy a sin clicker. You don't have to buy a sin clicker. Good. God is not. Uh, you know, an, an IRS auditor. You <laughs> okay. know. Okay. Uh, and so, generally speaking, what someone would do if they have a habitual sin and they fall into their predominant fault, you know, many times a day, is mm. they would just say something along the lines of, "Father, and I, this is my predominant fault, and I did this a lot of times." A lot of times. The idea is that you're just not trying to conceal the truth about sure. yourself. You know, if you. If you habitually send is this area and you said, well, I did that once. Well, you're really not. You're not really being forthcoming. The mm-hmm. idea is, are you being forthcoming? Okay. Very good. Uh, and thanks for watching us on Facebook today. It's called A Communion with Dr. David Anders. Let's go now to uh, Savannah in Tulsa, listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Savannah, what's on your mind today? Hi. I had a question about praying with, to, or um, addressing the saints in prayer. Because I have a chaplet of St. Dymphna, and I know that we're supposed to, like, address them in a certain way, because obviously that's part of our faith. But how do, like, how do we do that? Do we say, like, oh, I'm praying for St. Dymphna? I just, I honestly have no idea. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, I mean, the important thing is just to pray to the saints early and often, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's just get the job done, and it doesn't really matter that much about the details. But the, bit, the way to conceptualize it is that the saints are praying for you. Yes. That's the way you conceptualize it. They're praying for you, and so you're just asking them to pray for you. Now, you could, you could formulate that this way. You could say, you know, dear St. Dymphla, please pray for me. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but— uh, but in a, in a less precise way, it's very common for people to just simply address their petition for help directly to the saint. Saint Dymphna, help me, 
right? But what we mean when we say that, we understand that she has no independent power to help other than through the intercession that she has with God. Yes. So an appeal to St. Demphna for help is, in effect, an appeal for her intercession. So e- either one of those would get the job done. Sounds good to me. Uh, Savannah, thanks so much for your call today. It's called to Communion on EWTN. Back to the phones now for Alyssa, or Alisa, a first-time caller from Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Alisa, what's on your mind today? Uh, I was just wondering if there's a difference between anointing, excuse me, of the sick and last rite. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate this, uh, the question. There is a difference. There is a difference. Um, you can have the sacrament of the anointing of the sick without an expectation that you're going to die, without it being, you know, the, the, the your end, and without receiving all of the things that you would have at last rites. When, when someone is, we know that they're going to expire, typically they would receive uh, the sacrament of anointing. They would also receive viaticum, which is the last communion before they die. Uh, they would uh, also typically receive the apostolic pardon, which is a plenary indulgence for the remission of all the temporal punishment due to their sin. Uh, and they might perform other rites as well, like, say, repeating their baptismal vows or something of that sort. The idea is to really be fully prepared for your last moments. And uh, and that would not—you wouldn't do all of that every time you have the sacrament. Right. Elisa, thanks so much for your call. Here is David now, a first-time caller from San Antonio, listening on the great Guadalupe radio. Hey there, David, what's on your mind today? My question is that it hurts my heart that uh, the Catholics, all the Catholics uh, are allowing uh, same-sex uh, uh, uh for blessings when we know they're not changing their ways. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So you you added a qualification that I have not found in any document from the Holy See or from the Pope. You said, when we know they're not changing their ways. Mm. Now, I, I haven't heard the Pope say anything about allowing blessings for people who have declared antecedently that they do not intend to change their ways. I've never not, not heard the Pope say that. What I heard the Pope say, on the contrary, was that people who ask for a blessing from God would, by that request, seem to want to change their situation and grow in greater intimacy with God. Right? Why else would you want to change? Why else would you need grace except to change your subjective situation? And and what the Pope said was that a, a priest may respond to that request for a blessing, as long as doing so does not imply any kind of acceptance of an intrinsically immoral union. Now, all of us are sinners. All of us are sinners. Uh, all of us, as we at, at whatever point in time that we decide to turn our life around and get right with God have to ask God to bless us from a position of mortal sin. Like, the first turn to God is always from the state of sin. Sure. And and we'd, we'd be in a big pickle if we couldn't ever ask God for anything except if we were holy, because we could never get holy. You'd never get out of sin to become holy if you had sure. to be holy to ask to begin with. Right, right. There you go. Hope that's helpful for you, David. Thanks so much for your call today. Quick question now from Jim. Why can't infants or children receive communion in the Roman Rite. Yeah, so in antiquity, the practice was typically to instruct people prior to their uh, coming into the church at Easter. They would get instruction, then they received, receive all of the sacraments of initiation, and then they would receive mystagogy, more instruction. Uh-huh. Um, now, when infant baptism became the norm, when, when it ceased to be adult baptism, you had to make a decision about, well, 
which is the priority uh, to to receive all the sacraments of initiation or to receive the instruction? And what the Latin Church did was split up the sacraments of initiation to really prioritize that instruction. What the Eastern Church did was put the instruction afterwards. But each of them took something from from the original ancient formula. They just interpreted it in different ways. Sure. Jim, thanks so much uh, for your email. In a moment, we'll be talking with Tom in Oklahoma. Uh, Also, uh, Scott has a great question via YouTube. Kirk has one on Facebook. Lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on TV today, I recommend you uh, shoot us an email. The address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. Hey, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Divine Mercy Radio. They are in Kansas, I believe based in Hayes, Kansas, celebrating 13 years with us. How about that? Congratulations to Lester and Donetta Robin, Nathan Lang, and everybody at Divine Mercy Radio from your friends here at EWTN. All right, let's go now to uh, Tom. Tom is in Oklahoma, listening on uh, also Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Tom, what's on your mind today? Day, sir. Well, hi, good afternoon. Uh, I was wondering, I'm a little confused, I was hoping Dr. Anders could clarify to me what things carried over from the Old Testament that are, that are still required by Christians today and what things uh, are not. For example, uh, a week or so back, uh, uh, Dr., Dr. Anders mentioned that the uh, uh, tithing is no longer required, uh, but I'm assuming that the uh, uh, Ten Commandments are still required to be followed. And I was just trying to see what else, how, how can you clarify what what else from the Old Testament applies nowadays and what no longer does? Yeah, sure. I appreciate the question. So the, the aspect of the Old Testament that is of perennial value is its, is its prophetic content that establishes God's plan of salvation for the world through the chosen people and ultimately through the progeny of Abraham who would become Jesus Christ. So the the whole ministry of Christ and the notion of the kingdom of God and the salvation of the world is unintelligible apart from the Old Testament story of the call of Abraham and the people of Israel. So that that remains part of our essential identity. Now nothing there's nothing about that in a, that implies a, a set of legal prescriptions per se, right? That's just a it's just a sort of conceptual narrative apparatus for understanding the Christian tradition to which it's in, it's intimately linked to the Old Testament. Um, when it comes to the moral catechesis of the Old Testament, the, the, the New Testament perspective is that the law of Moses as such, what was revealed on Sinai, um, uh, what was written on tablets of stone, um, is uh, that we don't have to adhere to the Mosaic Code in the way in which the Israelites did, um, but it doesn't mean the principles that underlie the code are no longer relevant. Rather, if you have the love of God and neighbor in your heart— then you will, by default, fulfill the rest of the law, right? Or the, okay. the, the moral principles of the law that are really its, its, its core and its essence. Sure, and, you know, sure. I've used the illustration on the air before that, you know, if you're a grammar school teacher, you know you've got one kid in class that you never have to tell to do anything because that child is dutiful and compliant and cares about his or her neighbor and is respectful of other persons and wants to do the good for good's sake. And then you've got another kid that you have to tie down with 50,000 rules, right? <laughs> 
And the point of the Christian faith and our relationship with the Holy Spirit is to make us docile to the truth, to virtue, to goodness, to love and mercy, so that we don't have need of law written on tablets of stone, but it's rather written on our hearts. Um, now, there are specific admonitions of the Old Testament that seem to reflect what those deeper moral principles would be. Um, you know, if you're going to put teeth in the idea of justice or of mercy or love, then the Ten Commandments is a pretty good summary of what would re be required by, say, the natural law. Um, the admonitions of the Old Testament prophets about caring for the poor and, and not judging with unjust weights and measures, that sort of thing, um, you know, they, those things would be true whether or not Isaiah said them, whether or not, Isaiah, whether or not Amos said them. They're the kind of truths that any person of goodwill who knows Christ and, and has a sort of rational conception of human flourishing would be able to arrive at those kind of conclusions, and they're obligatory because they accord with human flourishing, with human sure, dignity, sure. not because necessarily they were, you know, written on parchment or, or, or tablets of stone, um, but because they're true in an absolute sense. Um, so, you know, the, the tithing command specifically had reference to um, the, the, the civil and religious polity of ancient Israel and how they maintained their priestly class of the Levites. Right? Mm -hmm. that, that's not the social context in which we live. So that's that, something like supporting the ministry, that is obligatory. Sure. But the, the specific tithe that was used to support the Levites in the Old Covenant, that, that's a very localized, contextualized piece of legislation that doesn't apply to us. Tom, thanks so much for your call from Oklahoma. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Atlanta now and talk with Sean, listening on our great partner, The Quest. Hello, Sean. What's on your mind today? Hi. So um, I hope you're going to unpack this for me. So I was listening to this atheist, Alex O'Connor, who says he, free will doesn't exist. And he says you're bound by your wants. You cannot determine your wants. And then he said, think of something you don't want and try to want it. It's not possible. In order to change a don't want to a want, you need to want to want it and vice versa. I don't understand that. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Um, I, I do understand that. What, what Alex O'Connor is arguing is that when you choose, you choose on the basis of preferences that you didn't choose. Okay. You know, um, to take an example, I... Um, I, I really like pecan pie, personally. I really like pecan pie. Um, but um, what am I not a fan of? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm really not a fan of, like, say, deeply greasy lasagna. All right? <laughs> okay. like, like, if you pass a deeply greasy lasagna in front of me, it's just not going to—it's uh, not going to attract my appetite. Okay. Whereas a pecan pie would, okay? Now, the reasons that I don't like real greasy lasagna— may be beyond my immediate control, may have to do with my genetics or my culture or my upbringing, mm -hmm. and I, I can't suddenly make myself want to eat lasagna. Uh, and so according to O'Connor, that fact, the fact that our preferences may be ingrained in our genetics or biology or our history, seems to uh, suggest that we don't have any free will. Um, I don't think it means that at all. I don't think it means that at all. And in fact, that, that re the recognition that we are governed to a certain extent by our preferences, or at least that we're, I should say, we're constrained by our preferences, is integral to the Catholic concept of free will. See, from the Catholic point of view, we think O'Connor is correct, that we are constrained by our impulses and our preferences, uh -huh. and what grace does, if we receive the grace of Christ, is to begin to liberate us from those, uh, from those impulses and to put new impulses into us. 
And so from a Catholic point of view, real freedom is freedom from your passions, freedom from your impulses, mm. and freedom towards more transcendent goods, more transcendent goods. And, and, uh, and so Augustine would say, St. Augustine, that you're not really free until you've been totally transformed in grace. So I, I, I mean, I kind of agree with O'Connor the atheist to a certain extent, but I just don't think that's what free will means. I think free will means, like Augustine, that, we've, that through the grace of God we can become transformed in our preferences and we can begin loving worthy things rather than un- unworthy things. And then the more transformed you are in grace, the harder and harder it is for you to sin. Okay. Gr- free will doesn't mean that I'm perfectly indifferent, you know, between, say, virtue and vice. Mm-hmm. It means that I have the rational capacity to choose between them. And the more I'm freed up from my passions, the freer I am to make that rational choice. Hope that's helpful for you, Sean. Thanks so much for your call from Atlanta. We're going now to Omaha. Let's talk with uh, Walt, a first-time caller, also listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. What's on your mind today, Walt? Uh, Excuse me. Yes, uh, I was just curious. A recent uh, Sunday reading was uh, Jesus saying... um, you know, you guys have given me, or you'll be saved because you gave me clothing, food, and this. And then the other folks, you didn't didn't do that, basically. So I was recently in New York, and it's a ton of people of all types, and, and just recently got a cup of coffee, and I'm walking down the street, and some hobo basically got in my face. So I could sure use a cup of coffee, and he's carrying all his belongings in a little cart. And I didn't give it to him, and boy, it's just been haunting me ever since. Is that like, am I on the wrong side? Should I have given that? I mean, I didn't need the coffee. I understand the question. I think we've all been there. So there are people in the Catholic tradition who have said, I'm going to give everything to everyone, and when I see the hobo with the with the cart with the you know the cans and the clothes, I'm going to take the shirt off my back and hand it to him and, and go running out naked into the street praising Jesus. And the the premier example of that kind of radical dedication to the gospel would be Francis of Assisi, yes. who literally did that. Yeah. He literally gave the shirt off his back to anyone who would ask him, and he literally walked naked into the public square of Assisi and was had to be clothed by the bishop because mm. he wasn't wearing anything because he'd given it all away. Right. Yeah. So I mean that there are people in the Catholic tradition who have lived that kind of radical self donation. Uh, now after Francis, Francis started a movement, the Franciscan movement. And there were some who wanted to take Francis's radical commitment to poverty to the ultimate extreme and insist that every Catholic has to be a Franciscan. They were called radical Franciscans. <laughs> and, of course, the problem with that is that if, if every Catholic or every person lived Francis's idea of poverty literally, then you would have a total breakdown of civil society because you have to have somebody that, you know, keeps the roads working, yeah. basically. And and so the Catholic tradition has never taken the position that everyone is obligated to that to that kind of radical self donation in every context, and even in Jesus's own ministry, there were those like the rich young ruler in Mark twelve, where Christ said, "If you want to be perfect, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow me." But there were others like the Gerasene demoniac who said to Christ, "Hey, I want to get rid of everything and come and follow you," and Christ said, "No, that's not for you. You go back to your family and tell them how much God has done for you." And so what's, what is absolutely non-negotiable is care for the poor. Care for the poor. Sure. But, but how that gets fleshed out in our lives depends upon our vocation. 
and should uh, also involve an exercise of prudence on our part. I mean, if you're genuinely motivated not just by pity, but by care for the other human being and their integral humanity, you're going to ask yourself, what is the best thing I can do to help them? And, and I mean, I, 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 I know of situations where people have been grossly exploited and taken advantage of because in their naive goodwill, they wanted to do good to all men. Uh, and uh, and crooks and shysters and con men have uh, have really done them an injustice and, and pr- preyed upon that. Um, uh, so you know there are other ministries. I mean we have uh, in my diocese people in the church, deacons and so forth, and, and lay people that that are heavily involved in things like uh, food pantries and uh, soup kitchens and mm-hmm. other ministries that are meant to help people in need, but uh, but have uh, you know have the experience and they're, they're, they're embedded closely enough in the community that they know when their help is actually helpful and when maybe they're aiding and abetting a con. Yeah. And uh, Walt, thanks so much for your call today. It's called a communion here on EWTN. If you're new to Catholic media, you don't know a whole lot about uh, the various programs we have for you on television or radio. Let me make a little recommendation for Catholic Connection. This is a great program hosted by Teresa Tamio. She and her guests share their Catholic perspective on the day's news and newsmakers. Always a fascinating program. Check it out on EWTN Radio at 9 a.m. Eastern each and every weekday right here on EWTN. All right, let's go now to uh, Douglas in Kenner, Louisiana, listening on the great Catholic Community Radio. Uh, Douglas, what's on your mind today, sir? Sure. Um, Dr. Andrews, Tom Price, you guys really help a lot of people. I know know you've helped me. Thank you. Dr. Andrews, yesterday you gave this great insightful analysis of the prejudices that fundamentalists often bring into the scriptures. I got two of them. You know, one is that it's a complete rule of faith, a complete compendium of the faith. The other is that the, uh, the scriptures are perspicuous, that they're easily and readily understandable. I cannot remember number three. Would you mind telling me about sure, that? Sure, sure, sure. So we had a question yesterday on the show about uh, whether Protestants and Catholics interpret the Bible the same way, and they definitely do not. And so I laid out uh, some of the prejudices that I think that all Protestants bring to the interpretation of Scripture, and then we might add another one that would apply strictly to fundamentalists as a distinct form of Protestants. So the three prejudices were, first of all, Protestants regard the Bible as a sufficient rule of faith, meaning that everything you need to know about faith or practice or morality is found in the Bible. And that that conviction will inevitably lead to uh, distortions in the way you interpret or apply the Bible, because the Bible doesn't address a lot of moral questions or theological questions, which may lead one to the false inference that if the Bible doesn't address it, it must become irrelevant to my life. And uh, and so that will that may lead huge areas of your life um, uh, in a kind of moral no-man's land if well. the Bible doesn't address them, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a deep problem in the Protestant understanding of the Bible. Uh, another one is the is the notion of the perspicuity of Scripture, which is the idea that the Bible is sufficiently clear that a person of goodwill can come to the Bible, read it, understand it, and accurately apply it to their life to come to salvation. And uh, and that's very problematic because many people approaching the Bible in that naive kind of sense uh, will come to interpretations that are grossly harmful to their spiritual life and their moral progress. And I gave the example yesterday on the show of of the of the antebellum uh, pro-slavery apologists in the South that that took the view that well hey the Bible seems to condone slavery in a kind of straightforward way and therefore we condone slavery and it led to them uh, committing atrocities against their fellow humans and all motivated by this kind of doctrine of the perspicuity of the Bible. Uh, the third one that I mentioned 
is a, um, a, a, a conviction about the meaning of certain texts of the Bible. So in particular, in St. Paul's letter to the Romans and St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, so the biblical books of Romans and Galatians, the Protestant tradition has for 500 years interpreted those books in a very specific way uh, to, to, um, to support Luther's idea that you're saved by faith alone. Right, and that doctrine, Luther's idea of faith alone, comes out of his exegesis, his interpretation of those two biblical books. Now, the problem is not limited only to Romans and Galatians. The problem is that since every other book of the Bible says in a very straightforward way, to be saved, you must be morally good. I mean, that's what Jesus says over and over and over again. Uh-huh. It, it, Luther, if Luther's right on Romans, which he's not, by the way, but if Luther were right on Romans— it would introduce a kind of contradiction in the Bible that would be just unreconcilable, irreconcilable. Namely, you know, so Christ's straightforward moral admonition, you must do these things to be saved, versus what Paul would seem to have said in Luther's mind, you don't have to do those things to be saved. How do you reconcile that? And so Luther invented a hermeneutical method, that's a method of interpreting the Bible, called the law-gospel hermeneutic, in which every time he found a command or an admonition, he said, well, that's law. Every time I find a promise, I call that gospel. And the, part, the point of law for Luther is basically to scare you into believing the gospel. It was a way of relativizing or mitigating the moral force of commands wherever they might be found in the Bible. Mm. And so that, that idea, that, 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 that spurious distinction between law and gospel that Luther proposed led to a, an interpretive framework that basically denudes most of the Bible of its moral force. Right, and and most Protestants hold to some version of Luther's law gospel hermeneutic, leading them to grossly misunderstand or misapply the Bible to their to their personal lives. Um, the final prejudice that I didn't talk about yesterday, because it wasn't about fundamentalists, it was just about Protestants in general. But if uh-huh. you want to talk about the subset of Protestants called fundamentalists, they they add another prejudice, and that is that the way to interpret the Bible in any place is to is to read the text of Scripture in its straightforward, denotative sense, the way the man on the street would understand the text if it appeared to him. Um, uh, and so that, that has led to all kinds of gross misunderstanding, like, for example, taking uh, passages of the first 11 chapters of Genesis as if they were a comprehensive account of, say, Earth's uh, early geological history, mm. when they're nothing of the sort and any kind of consideration of scriptural genre uh, and uh, its context in literary history would suggest that's not the way these texts are meant to be interpreted. And it leads to things like the alleged conflict between science and religion. So so those four prejudices I find typical of, uh, of most Protestants. Catholics, of course, read the Bible in a vastly different way that is much more open to reason, uh, to science, to human experience, and to, an, and to a developmental idea of revelation. All right. And Douglas, thank you so much for your call from Louisiana. Scott's watching us on YouTube today. What can I tell my Catholic friend who is questioning why he needs to go to confession to a priest? I provided scripture, but he still says no. Yeah, thanks. So the first thing that Jesus did when he rose from the dead was give the apostles the power to absolve sins. Now, I wonder why Christ did that if he didn't think we needed it. So it's very presumptuous for a Catholic who claims to be a follower of Jesus to claim that and then say, well, you know, Jesus acted kind of ridiculously when he gave the power to forgive sins to the church. If he gave it, he must have intended for us to use it. And I think we can discern some of the reasons why. So you might ask the same question, why do I need to be baptized? Why do I need to go to communion? Why do I need to be married in the church? Why do I need any of the sacraments of the church? Surely God could extend that grace to me in some other way. 
I mean, he could. Yes, he could. He could give it to you in another. So why does he choose to give it through these visible, tangible media? And uh, what the Catholic Church teaches is that he gives it to us in these media because they are particularly effective at, at, at bringing us into a kind of psychological accommodation to the mm. grace of the sacrament. Um, because, they, because they're tangible means they, they work on us in our intellect and in our imagination and our will and our affectivity in ways that a mere abstract truth would not, would not do. And let's, let's look at confession particularly. Why does your friend not want to go to confession? It's embarrassing. It's inconvenient. It's humiliating. Those are exactly the things he needs. Exactly. Right? The, the very reason he doesn't want to go is the reason Christ gave the sacrament, so that we'll be forced to do things like make a genuine examination of conscience and actually say these things out loud, yeah. make an act of humility to reveal our faults to another human being, specifically ask for grace and mercy and forgiveness, do acts of penance. I mean, all of those things that are integral to the sacrament are integral to its efficacy. And so the fact that God could give grace in some other way is irrelevant. God chooses to give it in this way because the medium itself is particularly effective at undoing the the canker of sin that works on us in things like our pride and our self-deception. Yeah. Scott, thanks for watching us on YouTube. Uh, Kirk is watching us on Facebook today. Should a priest be paid for a baptism? Also, do you pay a spiritual director? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So priests, uh, it depends on the context, right? So if you take a diocesan Catholic priest, uh -huh. um, uh, here's a man who has to buy groceries. Uh, he has to pay a power bill. Um, he, has to, uh, he has to save for retirement, and he's not automatically taken care of by the church when he reaches retirement age. Yeah. He's got to find how, to, how he can take care of himself. Uh, you know, occasionally he may want to go visit his family and, and, you know, buy gas to drive or a plane ticket or something like that. He, he has material needs like the rest of us. Um, most priests, the Ossesan priests in North America, it's different in other parts of the country, have a compensation package that includes their housing and transportation and meals um, and, a, and a small salary. It's not a huge salary. And, and then they will often be paid an extra stipend if they do fill-in work, you know, if they say baptisms for somebody else or go hear confessions. But it's, a, it's not a lot of money. I mean I, I mean, I know what priests get paid in my diocese to do. That's not a lot of money. And yeah. sometimes they might go and spend four hours in the confessional or two hours, and it doesn't change. They're not paid by the hour. They're paid by the sacrament. Um, and that's reasonable because, you know, they, they, I mean— some of them may take their vacation time or their day off to do this kind of thing if it's sure. extra work, and and uh, and that's it's a it's a it's a courtesy to to offer them a stipend. Now, there are plenty of situations in which a priest would refuse payment or wouldn't take it. Um, I mean, I'm I'm forever bothering religious priests of friends of mine who don't take a salary and you know they're supported by their communities. Um, you know, to get up at two o'clock in the morning and and go hear the 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 last confession and give last rites to some person who's dying in the hospital, and they don't necessarily get a stipend for that at all. I mean, yeah. I, it, it really depends on the context. Okay, very good. And what about a spiritual director? Should you pay a spiritual director? Well, only if you think they're worth it, right? I mean, the, many people who give spiritual direction do not ask for payment. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people who set themselves up as kind of quote-unquote professional spiritual directors, and they come with certifications and this this sort of thing, and they try to make their living this way. If that's how they're making their living, that's a legitimate way to make a living. And my question as to whether you think you should pay them or not would be entirely dependent on whether you think they're worth the money. Yeah. Like any like any consumer who's buying a product, I would say, look, if, you know, if it's 
uh, you know, don't pay more than it's worth. If it's not <laughs> worth it, I wouldn't go, wouldn't go to that person. Kirk, thanks for watching us on Facebook today. Here is Vicki now, a first-time caller from Columbus, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Hello, Vicki. What's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders. Thank you for taking my call. My question is, which was kind of answered um, in the last call, or possibly about things being tangible as a sacrament. Um, I am Catholic. I uh, was a convert and spent 40, 50 years. I forget how long now. But I have a very good friend who's an older adult, and she's not baptized. And I'm trying to, I, I haven't really uh, discussed with her in, in any detail at all why it's important. Is there a book or anything that you would recommend that I could give to her? Um, yeah, thank you. There, there are lots of books on the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Uh, you know, I, I hesitate to recommend one by name because I don't really know uh, what your friend's uh, position is relative to literacy and uh-huh. study and theology and things like that. I mean, there are lots of books on the sacraments. Any one of them would do the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Bible for that matter. Yeah. Um, but in terms of just the, the truth of the matter, I mean, we want to be baptized first and foremost because Christ commanded it. He said, could the disciples go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And St. Paul tells us that we die with Christ in baptism and are raised again with him to new life. Baptism is the rite of entrance into the church, into the body of Christ. It's the beginning of the Christian life. Um, Jesus says we have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, and baptism is the rite by which we're born again. St. Peter says that baptism now saves us, not the washing of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience to God. So, you know, we ought to be baptized and join ourselves to the company of the Christian faithful and live the Christian way of life. Um, and uh, so that's what I have to say. Okay. Let's uh, try to go to Matt in North Carolina very, very quickly here, listening on Wilmington Catholic Radio. Matt, we have about 30 seconds. What's your question for today? Oh, uh, man, I had a couple, couple of them, but I'll try to make it quick. Uh, you guys are a testament to the strength of the Holy Spirit, but this has got to be exhausting. Um, I want to know if there's a time when it's so to all right, real quick, I'm about to run out of time. The Catholic position on war is there is such a thing as a just war if the damage that we're seeking to prevent is lasting and grave and all other avenues have been exhausted and the prospects of success are high and the prospect that will cause... Uh, the prospect is it will, will cause less harm than we would otherwise seek to advert. If we can meet those four qualifications, we have the qualifications of a just war. You can read about it in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Very good, Matt. I'm glad we could get that in. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern. We invite you to uh, join us there, and we'll uh, see you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. I'm Tom Price. Have a wonderful day, and God bless.